Welcome to the SCOTUS Blog Podcast. I'm Adam Schlossman. As part of our special Race and the Court program, programming during Black History Month, we are thrilled to have a chance to speak with historian David Sasowski, who is here to discuss the unexpected consequences of Brown v. Board of Education on African-American schools and education in the South. Uh, David is an independent historian, uh, received his PhD from Harvard University, and is a writer who was taught at Duke University, UNC Chapel Hill, and East Carolina University. He's written extensively on African-American history in the South, including a, his book, Along Freedom Road, Hyde County, North Carolina, and the Fate of Black Schools in the South. David, thank you very much for being here. Adam, it's nice to be able to join you. Your book, Along Freedom Road, chronicled the 1968-1969 uh, school boycott in Hyde County, North Carolina, which was one of the most successful protests of the civil rights movement. When you began your research for your book, what was the customary interpretation about the impact of segregation on black education in the South? And how did you begin forming a different approach to studying education and desegregation? Sure, Adam. Let, let me give you the 30-second version of, of, of how we looked at sort of the history of school desegregation in Brown before my book. And it's going to be, you know, rudimentary here. But for, for 20 years, 25 years, the NAACP and its attorneys worked their way up through the courts to bring Brown to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court rules in 1954 that school desegregation must end. There must be, quote, just school, one school system. At that point, the South, including my native state, North Carolina, find different ways to resist school desegregation that last, in most cases, for 15 years. And during that time, the presumption is that what we're trying to do to, to honor Brown and the Supreme Court's decision, what has to happen is that African-American schools will be shut down across the South and African-Americans moved into white schools and of course, Brown doesn't say that. Brown says that there has to be just schools and there has to be an end to the two school systems, one black, one white, and only one that's left. But they didn't put the power to implement that decision back in the hands of local school boards that are all white and have been resisting racial integration for all those decades. And, and our, our traditional narrative of the, of the civil rights movement and of the history of school desegregation is that what happens after Brown is the slow rising of the civil rights movement, the African-American freedom struggle, to compel white school systems to accept blacks into their ranks. So you have the very dramatic moments of African-American children, usually small numbers at first, one or two children walking into the Little Rock High School or into, into, into schools all over the South. What wasn't being looked at in the national scene at the time, but was being felt at the southern grassroots, was that African-American schools were being destroyed and that this tradition of African-American education was being destroyed. That involved closing of African-American schools, the firing of black teachers, the moving of African-American children into white schools, again, controlled by the same people that had opposed school desegregation for all those years, where they tended to be tracked into lower-level classes or trade classes and things of that sort. They faced unfair discipline. They were expelled at higher rates, generally not treated in a the kind of loving, caring, supportive, honored way that, that we all want our children treated. That's where the Hyde County school boycott and the story that I wrote comes in, is that they, even though it was one of the poorest, most rural counties in the country at that point, Hyde County, North Carolina, it was the first place that African Americans in a mass scale said, 
know that if, if, if this is what brown means, we liked brown. We're not against going to school with our white neighbors. But if this is what brown means, we don't want any part of it. And they pulled all of their children out of, out of the schools for an entire year. Can you discuss a little bit uh, more about the kind of the distinct African-American educational traditions? The traditional role and, and, and the, the, the role that, that um, what, what had to be emphasized by the NAACP's attorneys in Brown was their inherent inferiority. Not only, I mean, they, they were always less funded less well, teachers were paid less, and, and the NAACP went beyond arguing that not only is discrimination happening, but even if they were equal, even if the Supreme Court's 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson ruling, which said separate but equal schools were constitutional, even if we eventually lived up to that, which we never had, that was inherently bad for black children. And I'm not, and I wouldn't argue against that necessarily. But the flip side of it was that despite, and, and what has been historically neglected, that despite that oppression, despite the inequality of funding, Despite all the, the poor buildings, the uh, ramshackle housing, all, all of that that went along with the black schools in the South, African-American educators, parents, religious leaders, and children, in a way, had conspired to create a proud, strong tradition of African-American education that not only prepared children for jobs and, and their you know, sort of professional futures, but of course, it's there that that the children who became the civil rights movement in America were all educated. It had a spiritual dimension. It was very closely wrapped around the, the African-American church as well. And it was kind of, if you can imagine, it was kind of like a protective space. Here you are in an extremely oppressive society that is out to get you in every which way. And here's a space where you can go and learn about your own tradition, be treated by teachers that know you and your background, they know your mama and your grandmama probably. You see these people in church, and they created this space. And the people in Hyde County, the African-American people in Hyde County, talked about the OA Pay School the way the rest of us might talk about an Ivy League college. Expectations were high. You dressed like you were going to church. You minded your manners. There, there was an assumption that you were going out not only to learn and and go after intellectual attain attainment, but that you were also required to have some, a sense of social mission that you were going to go out and change the world for the better. That, of course, is what was destroyed when school desegregation became a one-way street rather than being kind of... It, I, I think we all know it would have been difficult no matter what. Merging, merging two races, two intellectual traditions of education, two, all that would have been difficult, and, and everyone understood that something was going to be lost in that process. Whites would have given up, we're going to have to give up something. Blacks were going to have to give up something. African Americans in the rural South, at least, did, did not expect, though, that Brown was going to mean an entire one-way street, the end, the end of all they had accomplished, and, and sort of their subsumption into this, this white tradition. And it, it wasn't just the, the, uh, the children who were affected. Can you explain a little more about how the integration of schools affected the, the teachers and the principals who had staffed and, and, and run these African-American schools? Sure. Uh, and there we're talking about the, really the, for, for African-American educational leadership, we're really talking about the destruction of – it's just almost total destruction. North Carolina had roughly 210 African-American principals 
Pittsburgh in 1960. It was down to three in 1973. This was in a society where black principals and teachers were really at the foremost of African-American society. Teachers weren't hit as hard, but much the same kind of thing happened on that end. There were kind of unwritten rules amongst white administrators, or too many white administrators, that you particularly couldn't have black teachers in sensitive jobs or public, highly visible jobs like sports team coaches, guidance counselors, that sort of thing. Um, so that tradition really meant that that, that had a, a, a widespread impact on the, on, on the black community as a whole. And late in the movement, the courts, particularly the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, did get involved in some isolated school districts, putting a halt to that kind of wholesale displacement of black educators. After Brown was handed down, the state and local communities have went back to Plessy, went back to separate but equal. Well, yes, and it was odd because, uh, and ironic in that, because, of course, the South had never really taken Plessy seriously in the first place. I, I mean, the idea that, that schools, that they took the separate part seriously, but they had never taken the equal part seriously. So it wasn't like you could go to a school in North Carolina in 1930 and find a white school and a black school and they were going to have the, have the same amount of money per student and, they were, and teachers were going to be paid the same, they were going to have the same supplies. I mean, just the opposite, of course. Teacher ratio was often as high as four and five to one in North Carolina, white to black. And in some states, Mississippi, Louisiana, it was sometimes eight and nine to one mm-hmm. higher. But yes, once, once, once the court rules on Brown, North Carolina in particular took, all of a sudden started taking Plessy very seriously. And it worked in a way because they started building African-American schools. Here they've just been ordered to end the dual school system, the black and separate black and white school system. And one of the responses is, well, how do we defuse pressure to do this? So they start building African-American schools. They start equalizing teacher pay. They start investing in African-American education. That's one of the resistance strategies to Brown that plays out in North Carolina. And it plays out for about 15 years. And But one of the ironies then is that come the time that Brown is actually enacted, and of course, just to remind people that, you know, Brown is really only enacted after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 gives the executive branch more enforcement authority. And at that point, they can deny federal funds to school districts that aren't complying with school integration. And that, that happened, serious school integration begins to happen in 1967, 68, 69, 70, 71. When southern school districts are compelled to end the dual school system, what they do is, of course, destroy the black school system. And what that often meant was that they were closing the newer, better physical plants in school. So the OA Pay School in, in, in Hyde County, where I focused my book on, the OA Pay School was the only, was the newest school in the county. It, had a, it actually had a better physical plant than the white school. They were going to close all the black schools. That, that, Hyde County is a very rural county. There were only two African-American schools and one white school. But just like throughout the South, what they did was close, originally was the plan was to close two black, the two black schools and move all the children to the white school, even though its physical plant wasn't as good as the OFA school. Looking back at, at, at Brown, do you think, in retrospect, there, there were other ways that in, the integration proponents could have, could have argued the case. Do you think the NAACP foresaw the destruction of these black schools? And do you think they had any other choice? Well, let's be clear that they, they, they weren't, no, 
Thurgood Marshall and, and, and his attorneys were not going to be, were, were never argued for the wholesale destruction of African American education. But I don't know, Adam. All of this was occurring in a political climate in which, even when school integration finally went down, even when, okay, it did, this, Brown is in 1954, it finally goes down, it, it goes down in 19, you know, late 60s, early 70s. Even at that point, national civil rights leaders are so afraid that there will be such a large white backlash against merger of black and white schools. The, the, the idea that Southern whites will see their children, you know, see their little girls next, sitting next to black boys and all that. That even when they see it happening, the national civil rights groups really quietly grimace and hope for the best and just move forward. It's the Southern grassroots where things get out of hand. I mean, that j just because the NAACP, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, CORE, and, you know, the two or three other major civil rights groups are willing to make that compromise, which they weren't happy with. They, 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 it's not that they didn't understand what was happening by that point, but they just said, well, this is, you know, James Ferguson, one of Julius Chambers' uh, law partners, told me that he said, you know, by, by 1968-69, we knew this was happening. We were getting calls from black communities all over the South. There were school boycotts breaking out all over the South. There were riots. There were protests. It was just one that got away, he said. Back in 1954, I don't think they could have imagined what would happen. I don't think, I don't think either, the, I don't think the Supreme Court could, but I, I certainly don't believe that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund attorneys could. And, and they, and while they, as I said earlier, I know that they had, they knew that there was going to be something lost, but nobody knew that the way that school integration would be implemented, the way that, that the kind of resistance, the combination, and the resistance, as you remember, or as you've read, is, you know, was happening on so many different levels. Everything, you know, from the kind of massive resistance, we're going to close, we're going to close our school systems, we're going to shut down and, and privatize the, the school systems, and we're going to attack NAACP members and all that, to these much more subtle things that North Carolina did. And even the HEW was not particularly responsible. Oh, HEW, which, you know, the old uh, Health Education and Welfare was charged with the enforcement of the Civil Rights Act when it came to the, the schools. So it was really up to them, beginning in roughly 19, you know, after, after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, to enforce that decree. But they were very clear. Some of their staff members well knew what was happening, but the, but there was still two things were happening. One was that is, is, is that their mandate, the way that Brown was interpreted, was had they interpreted Brown. Mean only the only the, the destruction of the two school systems. There had to be one. They did not interpret Brown to mean that it had to be done in a way that was honorable to the African American community as well. They didn't interpret it to mean that there had, that black teachers had to be treated the same as white teachers or black principals or anything of that sort. Uh, that that white schools and black schools had to be both be used and so the more capable and understanding or the more sympathetic HEW leaders and field people would often plead, you can see in their surviving documents, they would plead with local school leaders, come on, let keep this, this principal who's been here, this African-American principal who's been here 30 years and who, you know, the local black school is named after, please, please, please don't make him a, you know, a, a middle school history teacher while you put this, you know, these white teachers in charge of, you know, principals, vice principals, administrators, and all, all of that sort. Or don't, 
fire him. But they, in the end, they didn't believe that it, it was a matter of moral pleading, but they didn't believe that they had the force of the, the law, that the, the Constitution behind them. Do you have any strategies that might be developed for probing further both the short and long-term impact of Brown on education in the South? Well, I think that one of the more promising things that has happened, that my book was originally published in 1994. A year or two later, a uh, wonderful African-American scholar, uh, Vanessa Siddle Walker, at Emory University published a book that focused on the sort of qualitative aspects of what was, what were those African-American schools doing that made them so remarkable from the inside. She knew because she had gone to some of them. Why are the African-Americans of that generation so devoted to their schools, and why did they believe that, what, why, was, why were those schools worth fighting so hard for? And she looked at everything from how they conducted classrooms compared to, say, white classrooms, how they, what was the relationship to the broader community, what was the relationship to the church, uh, how did they test, how did they discipline, all of those things. Too often, whenever people pointed to the strengths of the African-American schools, you were you were so always anxious that whites who didn't want equality in education, didn't want school desegregation, were going to say, ah, see, it was better when we were separate. I still hear that sometimes. That's not the point at all. Sometimes these protests like the Hyde County School Boycott were interpreted that way by the press. Big headline in the Washington Post, I remember, talking about how blacks reject, blacks reject integration. That wasn't the point at all. It was over how it, how it happened. And since then, I think a whole group of new younger scholars, both black and white, have been looking at what it is in the public, what it is in those public schools, those African American schools now gone, that sustained African American children through those hard times, and what is it in those that might now help both black and white children. Thank you so much for your time, David, and uh, we really appreciate it. It's a pleasure.